You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. This week, we bring you a special edition recorded at the Australian International Air Show at Avalon. In a packed program, we report on the launch of the exciting Loyal Wingman Autonomous Unmanned Air Combat Support Aircraft, and we caught up with RAAF Air Commodore Mike Kitcher about the introduction of the F-35 to the RAF and the recent red flag exercise. We were invited to walk through one of the RAF's newest capabilities, the potent P-8 Poseidon anti-submarine warfare aircraft, with Group Captain John Grime and co-pilot Flying Officer Larissa Stevens. For more on the introduction of the F-35 to the ADF, we spoke with Greg Ulmer and Andrew Doyle from Lockheed Martin. And finally, Aspie's Malcolm Davis caught up with the head of the company's Australian Space Division, Rod Drury. But first, to the Loyal Wingman project, which was launched publicly at Avalon. The Loyal Wingman concept is a first on many levels, not least of which is the fact that it has been designed and will be developed here in Australia, with joint funding from Boeing and the Australian government. A potent air combat asset and potentially a valuable export opportunity for Australia. Let's hear it firsthand. Good morning. I'm Maureen Darty, President of Boeing Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific. Welcome to a very special event, um, the launch of Boeing's newest unmanned vehicle, designed and developed right here in Australia in partnership with our Australian customer. In just a few minutes, we'll show you the full-scale mock-up. But first, please join me in welcoming Dr. Greg Heislip. Uh, Greg is the Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for the Boeing Company. Well, good morning. Today is a big day for Boeing and a big day for Australia. The Air Power Teaming System is an unmanned, multi-mission system once operational. It will team with existing military platforms to project and protect force, extending the capabilities of current fleets and helping keep those in the air and on the ground safe. I'm proud to say that this new system represents the largest investment Boeing has ever made in this kind of development outside the United States. So this is a first. Let me repeat that. (laughs) It's our largest investment we've ever made in an unmanned program outside the United States. That is how much we believe in this program, its capabilities, its global business potential, and our team here in Australia to bring this home. Our Australian partners have approached this Boeing air power teaming system from a very different perspective not as a program acquisition, but as a research and development project. Their innovation co-investment with Boeing will lead to valuable insights, specifically how a loyal wingman concept demonstrator can support Plan Jericho and the RAAF's fifth gen capabilities. That's a great strategy. We need to build, fly, and learn. For more than a decade, we have invested heavily in Australian R&D. Last year alone, that investment totaled $62 million. These investments have led to breakthroughs like the one we're announcing today, which is also the company's first unmanned system designed completely in Australia. It's my pleasure now to ask Australia's Minister of Defence, the Honourable Christopher Pine, to join me. And it's now, and I said I wasn't going to say this, this is really a badass looking airplane. (laughs) It's 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 my great honour to introduce the world to Australia's loyal wingman, the Boeing Air Power Teaming System.
for Australian defence uh, because for the first time uh, the Australian government, the RAF, partnering with uh, a Boeing compact corporation like Boeing has decided to make a significant investment, a $40 million investment in backing Australian ingenuity, innovation, capability. And Boeing has agreed to be part of that really exciting new chapter in Australian defence industry history. We haven't built uh, an aircraft, designed and built an aircraft in Australia for military capability since the boomerang in the Second World War. So for those who aren't particularly familiar with defence or uh, the Air Force, it really is a red letter day. It's a 75 year journey from the boomerang to the loyal wingman. It's also a great name because uh, it, it explains exactly what its job is. And its job is to protect the F-35A or, or B or C variants in the air so they can do the job they need to do without being taken out in the battlefield. It's a very simple concept. Uh, it's a potentially very valuable one, very complicated. There will be ups and downs along the way in this research and development and then uh, progressing to manufacturing process. There will be times when this project, like many others in defence, will have its detractors. But the government is backing Australian defence industry and we're proud to be joined by Boeing, one of our great Australian supporters, uh, American supporters of the Australian Air Force. We're delighted to be, to be partnering with Boeing in bringing this about. So thank you very much. It's great to have so many Boeing representatives here from the United States as well. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about this project in the years ahead. is extremely excited about entering into an innovative partnership with Australian defence industry and being able uh, to cooperate to work at the leading edge of unmanned teaming concepts. Uh, we already have a fantastic relationship with Boeing and Boeing at Defence Australia in particular, and we have already uh, worked closely together on world-class leading technology such as the Wedgetail, Airborne, Early Warning and Control aircraft. And we look forward to deepening that relationship with Boeing and Boeing Defence Australia in particular as we work together to have a look at advanced technologies in the aviation space. Uh, this relationship that we are entering into with uh, Boeing uh, is just an example of the relationships that the Royal Australian Air Force has entered into with Australian defence industry, uh, with academia and uh, with other research projects to allow us to innovate inside the Air Force. Next, Jack Norton sat down with the head of RAAF's Air Combat Group, Air Commodore Mike Kitcher, to discuss how the Air Force is doing with the massively complex task of bringing the F-35 fighter up to speed. We've just come back from Minister Pine's announcement about Australia and Boeing developing jointly an unmanned combat aerial vehicle uh, known as the Air Power Teaming System or Loyal Wingman. As head of Air Combat Group for RAF, what are your thoughts on the announcement? Uh, how's it going to play out for your role? Well, I think it would be fair to say it's quite early days yet, but the announcement's quite exciting because the concept of the Loyal Wingman, the, the idea behind it, is quite a sound one. The practicalities of executing that, I think, have and will prove challenging, but well, well worth investing in. If you consider now that uh, around the world, in various platforms, there are fighter-type aircraft that have towed decoys, 
which are, if you like, a tethered loyal wingman. And I'm not going, going to go into which ones, but the fact that they exist obviously indicates that there is a thought process and a need for this. Those toad decoys are largely for defensive purposes and survivability purposes and are relatively reasonable levels of maturity. So if we expand that concept to, if you like, to a tethered loyal wingman if they're from a defensive perspective to a, an artificially intelligent or a loyal wingman that has greater flexibility to both aid the, the defensive or survivability characteristics of a man platform or indeed um, augment the lethality of that man platform by carrying weapons, that's quite an exciting concept. But early days yet. And as a pilot, is there going to be a cultural change needed for the Air Force to get accustomed to people flying alongside these unmanned aerial vehicles? Well, I'd say that's absolutely going to be a cultural change because at the moment we fly alongside each other in relatively, um, we're quite comfortable with doing, doing that for years, years and years of flying along as a, as a team, as a two-ship or a four-ship or an eight-ship of uh, fighters executing a mission. Doing that, but with uh, autonomous vehicles loyally tethered to you. Uh, first time I did that will be quite interesting because I'll be very interested in where <laughs> it's going because, uh, you know, worst case, if it hits me, it hits, the, it, you know, the, the, the loyal wingman hits the ground, no harm, no foul, but I'm a living, breathing human being, so I'm more interested in surviving that. So, as I said, it's early days yet, and that will take some technology, some getting used to, some procedures and practices that we don't currently carry out. But theoretically, conceptually, something following you around in a, a certain trail distance, that's relatively uh, attractive from lots of perspectives. But the practicalities of executing that, I think, will, will prove um, interesting over the next period of time. And the Air Force is up for the challenge of doing that uh, by, say, the mid-2020s, I think, is when they're aiming to get these things in the air? Um, well, I think getting these things in the air by the mid-2020s would be one aspect of the, of the um, capability development, which I think designing and flying a unmanned aerial vehicle as a loyal wingman by the mid-2020s, you know, I'm just a, just a dumb pilot, I'm not an engineer, so understanding the, uh, that sounds reasonable. But then um, having them operate in uh, conjunction with a manned aircraft by that date as well, that's probably another level of complexity yep. that I haven't yet put my mind to. Certainly, I think we'll probably have, have started to go down that path and experiment and conduct um, developmental testing and operational testing of an air vehicle flying in close proximity to a manned fighter, but whether that has led to, by the mid-2020s, mature tactics and employment of that in the operational capability will be another matter. That would probably be a fairly aggressive timeline. But certainly having the air vehicle flying, etc., that sounds quite reasonable. And you mentioned in a uh, media briefing on the F-35 capability, your biggest challenge, or the Air Force's biggest challenge, uh, in terms of maintenance, but also aircrew, is people. Yep. Uh, do you think that the more unmanned platforms we have, that's going to ease the burden on the RAF and probably the wider Defence Force? If you consider the people aspect of the F-35 situation, so it would be fair to say it's very early days yet for the Royal Australian Air Force and the F-35 capability as well. Whilst things seem to be going relatively smoothly at the moment, We've got two jets flying a limited number of hours and we're looking to build to 30 aircraft at the end of next year for our IOC capability. I'll be much more comfortable saying that things are going smoothly in about 12 to 15 months' time by mid-next year when we've got 12 to 16 to 18 to 20 aircraft operating. We'll have a much better idea then because we'll have a, a scale of, of operation that's representative of our operational capability. But having said that, at the moment, 
uh, in introducing the F-35 capability, the biggest challenges that I see are people, enough qualified technicians, tradespeople, uh, engineers to actually operate the aircraft and its myriad systems, and then people to, and people to fly the aircraft. With the technician and engineering side being the, being the most difficult. I'm not sure that uh, uh, at this stage my understanding of the concept of the loyal wingman is going to have much of an effect on that technical and engineering side. That that those people will be required to to manage the manned aircraft, the F-35 aircraft. Uh, certainly, what I think would, would would be exciting though is that the concept of a loyal wingman should mean that an individual aircraft, an individual pilot, or, or more importantly, a formation of aircraft will be far more powerful, yep. lethal and survivable into the future. So I don't think we'll need less people. In fact, I think considering less people would be probably a, a false economy, I would like to think that the, those people that are operating the airframe will be far more lethal, survivable and combat capable and able by that loyal wingman concept. And you were, uh, you've had some first up experience seeing the F-35 uh, itself in action. You were at Red Flag at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada uh, recently, yep. and you actually flew in the exercise. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that experience? Yeah, that was really good to see. So we, we had, uh, you know, to put that into perspective, the Red Flag 19-1, uh, which was the exercise that finished up a couple of weeks ago at Nellis Air Force Base, it was a US-Australian-UK exercise. Uh, and in that were US Air Force F-35As, um, US Air Force F-22s, US Air Force F-16s, Royal Air Force Typhoons, um, Royal Australian Air Force Classic Hornets, US Navy Super Hornets, uh, and a myriad of other uh, capabilities. In the missions that I was fortunate enough to fly in, flying the Classic Hornet, it was really interesting to see against a very determined and high-end adversary, both from a, an air threat uh, which was presented by uh, the adversary squadron there at Nellis, a surface-to-air threat, which was, was which uh, was pretty much an integrated air defence system, a layered defence, a cyber threat, and other threats on the ground, including a fairly heavy electronic attack capability from the the opposition forces. It was very pleasing to see, from my perspective, the way the F-35 aircraft enabled or better enabled and supported the entire strike package which consisted of fifth and fourth generation platforms. So I think as I described yesterday, what I was very pleased to see was in the, the couple of missions that I flew, which admittedly weren't, you know, it's not all roses here and uh, it, there were some red flag missions whereby the blue side was completely and utterly um, not obliterated, but certainly the red side had a good day. Put it. So it wasn't it wasn't as if the blue side had uh, had complete sway during the uh, or the uh, during the exercise. The red side actually did make some significant problems uh, for blue on a, on a significant number of missions. But on the missions that I was lucky enough to fly, in, which were somewhat simpler by day uh, than the night missions, the F-35s were the first in through the into the airspace, and if you like, they kicked the door down against a fairly determined air adversary. Uh, they then retired uh, back towards the strike train while the F-22s came over the top and held that door open. The F-35s then, uh, using their sensors and, uh, and other capabilities, were then part of the strike package that took the Classic Hornet formation that I was flying in, a US Navy Super Hornet formation and a Typhoon formation, if you like, deep into enemy land to deliver precision-guided weapons on targets. And uh, the F-35s uh, provided sensor awareness that, was, that, would would, that would otherwise have been unavailable 
to myself flying a classic Hornet with a older technology mech scan radar that was um, somewhat challenged by the electronic attack that was present. Not overwhelmed, but somewhat challenged. Uh, the Super Hornets helped with that as well. And then once they dropped their weapons on targets, there were F-35s out there conducting suppression of enemy air defences as well, along with Growler Air, US Navy Growler aircraft and US Air Force F-16s. So as an integrated package, it was really interesting to see how that F-35 integration was it was actually better than I expected at this stage, and it's a testament to the way the USAF is doing business with that, and probably a bit of a testament to the capability of the aircraft itself. Certainly, I felt far more empowered and enabled by the fact that uh, there was F-35s there, and to a certain extent, US Navy Super Hornets as well there, making our classic Hornet capability better than what it would otherwise be. And w when you're sitting in the aircraft in an exercise like that, you say you're, re you're receiving information that you maybe otherwise wouldn't be getting from uh, what the F-35s are collecting. How does that actually come in into you when you're sitting in the cockpit? Well, via various means, but basically you've got various displays in the cockpit and I think it'd be, it'd be false to say that you know, the F-35 has a significant amount of information that it basically develops. And it, uh, it shares, you know, the security, the security paradigms there as well. Certainly it'll share a certain amount of that information, uh, but it, it would be impossible to share at all. So. Um, that, that information basically appears, as is pretty well known, the F-35's got a multifunctional advanced data link which works with the F-35, and the F-35 also is able to integrate with 4th and 4.5 generate fighters via the Link-16. So that, that information for the classic Hornet that I saw was shared via the Link-16 network, which was which is a complete integrated part of the classic Hornet system, and it was relatively simple to embrace what we, what, what we were being told. but. It'd be, it'd be a very fair to say that we're only seeing a small amount of what F-35 itself was actually seeing. And the way the operation uh, for Red Flag panned out, is that how you envisage once we get some more uh, F-35s of, of our own uh, operating, is that how operations are going to work in that transition from as those classic Hornets retire, the Super Hornets, uh, some classic Hornets, and F-35s will work in conjunction like that, yeah, I, I think say with the F-35 kicking that door down? and keeping the other aircraft working in that stream, getting better information than they otherwise would? Well, I, I think it'll be, you know, it's it, 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 an an the answer that I will give is it, it, it depends. And it always depends on the scenario and the, and the threat and the, um, and the environment that you're operating yeah. in. So I think the thing that we'll need to understand is that there, there will possibly be some scenarios and some environments whereby the F-35 may choose and may uh, choose to operate largely by itself because to operate a, uh, anything other than that in that environment may not be sensible from a risk perspective. But that, I think, is not necessarily what we'll focus on initially. Our focus will be being able to do that, but more importantly, it'll be integrating the F-35 with our other ADF assets. Now, E-7 is a key one, Super Hornet is a key one, Growler is an extremely important one in the electronic attack and suppression of enemy air defences role. The Air Warfare Destroyer would be another key one to, to work with, and P-8 and obviously KC-30. That will be the focus of Air Combat Group in introducing the F-35, and certainly during the validation and verification activities we do, we could try to allow the F-35 to operate, and you know, three squadron to operate in isolation and be as good as they possibly can be in isolation, but we won't do that. We'll be trying to make sure that the, the, pr the primary focus of our validation and verification activities will be 
ensuring the F-35 value adds to the entire ADF capability and improves our entire capability, whilst preserving the option to use the F-35 on its own if the threat environment requires that. And that process in terms of getting it operational is on track at the moment? Is it tracking better than you expected, worse than you expected? Well, I think, you know, we've got two jets. So it's very, we've got two jets in Australia, another two turning up early April. So it's very early days yet to sort of claim victory on that. Everything I've seen so far, however, has been positive. But I think it would be fair to say that, you know, over the next couple of years, we expect to have um, some challenges that we w have been unable to predict, and that's part of the part of the purpose of conducting validation and verification. Uh, so for the very important activities such as weapon shoots, weapon employment, we'll be uh, setting up for those, you know, a month or so in advance of trying to execute to, to understand some of the problems that may occur from doing that in Australia. So whilst uh, there's a lot of hours on the F-35 fleet largely in the United States, but in other countries such as the UK and Norway as well. There's not many hours in the Australian environment, and that's what, we're, that's what we need to work on during the validation and verification activities. So I think it'd be quite premature to say that everything's under control. I think it'd be fair to say that things are looking positive at the moment, but uh, there's a long way to go over the next couple of years to get to IOC. And in terms of the size of the fleet, the way that's coming along, um, are you expecting that will have uh, the full 72 all delivered by, is it 2023, is that the...? Yeah, so the, the way that that's laying out at the moment is uh, eight jets by the end of this year, by the end of 2019, uh, 30, around 30 aircraft by the end of 2020, that'll be IOC, and IOC will largely consist of number two OCU or number two operational conversion unit being able to conduct technician, maintainer, engineer and aircrew training. So we have a sovereign training capability. So for me, that's the most important component of it, initial operating capability. So does and that mean not having to go to Luke Air Force Base in Arizona to, to train on them? So we are planning to end our uh, training presence at Luke at the end of 2020. And uh, I think we'll be on track to do that. So we are commencing training already in Australia. Certainly we've got technicians training on our uh, junior technicians training on the F-35 right now. We've got uh, some experienced air crews starting an Australian-based training trial uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And we intend to expand on that between now and the end of 2020. It'll be 2021, late 2020, early 2021, when we start to train brand new men and women coming off the Hawk at 76 Squadron onto the F-35. And in accordance with the plan that we've got, we intend to stay at Luke Air Force Base at the 61st Fighter Squadron right through to the end of next year. But the end of next year will be the end of the end of that presence, and and then being able to conduct sovereign training for Australia is very important. In fact, I think the most important component of our initial operating capability. Obviously, three squadron will be very important as well because they'll be the operational capability. But if we don't have the, if you like, the engine room that is our training capability, then it's going to be difficult to get to final operating capability. But anyway, 30 jets by the end of 2020, roughly. Uh, another 18 jets by the end of 2021. And in 2021, 77 squadron will transition to the F-35. In 2022, 75 squadron up at RAF Base Tyndall will transition to the F-35 and add about another 18 jets. And then without doing maths in public, the rest of the jets will turn up by about the end of 2023. Uh, 72 jets by then and we should be, uh, we're hopefully we'll be at our final operating capability by that stage. And do you think there's a chance there'll be uh, extra jets placed on top of that or is that a decision for down the line? Oh, I think that's a decision down the line. So at the moment the government has approved 72 aircraft and that's what we're planning on. Uh, there are options further out, uh, late next decade, 
uh, early the decade after probably in a, a very rough terms to consider whether the Australian F-35 fleet goes from 72 to around 100 aircraft, which is the, the, the openly disclosed program of record, yep. and what we may or may not do with the future of the Super Hornet fleet, it's well known that that decision uh, is, a, is going to be a... The defence will be working options over the next five or so years to present options to government for consideration in five or so years for uh, execution towards the end of next decade. And I suppose it depends where the Loyal Wingman project uh, ends up by that time. Well, I think the Loyal Wingman project will be a component of that decision matrix. I think that decision matrix on what we may or may not do will depend on a myriad of factors. How the F-35 transition's gone, uh, where we're, if you like, we've been, we've been working on the F-35 transition now for five years. It's not as if we've just started it. Um, we're, we're right in the middle of it, as opposed to just starting it. Uh, so how that goes will be a factor. Uh, the threat and, whether, and where our potential adversaries go would be another factor. Uh, how, how the loyal wingman concept or, and otherwise work, uh, works out would be another factor. Uh, funding, money, will be a, certainly be a factor. And uh, the geopolitical situation at that time will be another factor. So I think it's fairly reasonable to say that we've got a period of time to analyse that for the next five or so years, and then it'll be a government decision at a time of their choosing as to what we may or may not do. And just finally, you mentioned in your briefing that in terms of getting the F-35 on track, there's uh, a bit of a cultural change that's required in terms of thinking. Transitioning to a fifth generation fighter is pretty different to the fourth generation. Well, I think there's I think there's a couple of areas. So if I focus on the engineering and technical side first, which I've got to admit I'm not the expert on, but when we look at the new things that we have to do with the F-35 that haven't been done with our uh, Super Hornet or Classic Hornet aircraft, for example, um, the autonomic logistic information system and that method of managing the logistic support for the F-35 is new. It has issues. They're well documented. Uh, it's improving rapidly, but it's probably, to be frank, not where everyone would like to see it at the moment. Um, so there's issues with that. So understanding how we can work that system. Interest interestingly, uh, for our technical workforce, which has used the CAM2 electronic maintenance system now for the past close to uh, 20 years, being used to using an electronic and, uh, and computer-based maintenance management system has actually helped with the, with the mindset of our, of our technical personnel to transition to Alice. So we're not going from a paper-based system to a computer system, we're going from a computer-based system, admittedly, for a 4 and 4.5 gen aircraft to the 5th gen aircraft. So it's not as big a step. And our people are embracing that and making things work. But I think Alice is one. Um, the, the operational mission system or the OMS for the F-35 is different. The same concept, but certainly significantly different to the, super, to the classic Hornet well, certainly to the Classic Hornet and, and, to a certain extent, the Super Hornet. And how that OMS and how the mission planning requirements for the F-35, I think, is um, something we're learning slowly and doing OK at. Uh, the ACURL, the Australia-Canada-UK reprogramming laboratory to generate the sovereign mission data files to optimise the F-35 performance uh, in region by region for, th you know, for potential threats region by region is also something new. We're used to Juosu and our electronic warfare squadrons quite adept at, at programming mission data files for our classic Hornets. But we're not going to do that for the F-35. It's a completely different way of doing business. So those types of things are where we have put some effort in in the past and 
they are slowly bearing fruit, but there's challenges there. And then obviously the signature management of the F-35 is something we haven't done on, the, on for example, on the Classic Hornet. So we've got to make sure we understand what the, what the low observability capabilities are of our aircraft and how we manage that. And uh, there's, a, you know, there's a new breed of people on the flight line who look to actually, and I, I, I say somewhat flippantly and they hate it when I say this, but basically conduct arts and crafts on the aircraft. Because when you go out there and you watch what they do, um, they actually are doing arts and crafts on the aircraft to manage the stealth capabilities of the, of the airframe, and that's extremely important. The good news is they're doing okay with that as well, but we are, we are relatively new to having to manage signature. So there's all those things. And then there's the, you know, the aircrew perspective of if we flew the F-35 like we fly a classic Hornet, that would be a tragedy, and we're not doing that. Uh, the Super Hornet was purchased by the government as a bridging capability to our F-35, and it's proved fantastic in that respect. It's introduced a, a new security paradigm, which we've, which we've been able to leverage from to operate the F-35. It's introduced 4.5 generation tactics as opposed to our old tactics we used to fly, which are largely the tactics we can employ on the F-35 as well. So our aircrew have had a good step in that space. And now we've got to employ the F-35 how the F-35 should be employed, which is not how, uh, how we have traditionally employed, for example, our classic horn. And so that's a change in mindset, but it is really, it's heartening to see when I, when I go out there and fly with the junior air crew and I attempt to embrace what they are now flying, it's actually quite impressive because it's somewhat easier to employ in that sense and it removes some of the traditional ways of doing business which have been an impediment and allows you to optimise what I think was certainly the Super Hornet capability and I think we'll build on that for the F-35 capability as well. And you can, and we've seen the way the US Air Force is operating their F-22s and F-35s, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think that provides us a very good platform from which to not have to go back to first principles and develop everything ourselves, but to start from a known quality space and develop our tactics from there. And just finally, are you going to get up in the F-35 yourself anytime soon? <laughs> good question, well asked. Um, if you ask me, the answer is yes. If you ask my <laughs> boss, the answer is probably not yes. So we'll see how that we'll see how, see how that plays out over the next six or twelve months or so. Well, good luck with that, and thanks for joining us. Pleasure. While a lot of the noise at Avalon was about the F-35, it's not by any means the only new capability the RAAF is working up. We were invited to kick the tyres of a RAF P-8 Poseidon anti-submarine warfare aircraft with Group Captain John Grime, Head of 92 Wing and Flying Officer Larissa Stevens. With the big advance in, in P-8, and we're finding this having now operated it for a couple of years, um, is how much information comes in and goes off the aircraft. Um, both to other platforms, so we work a lot with the uh, Royal Australian Navy and other coalition navies, talking to their ships, talking to their helicopters. What you've got behind you is, is what we call the tack rail. Um, five seats, uh, five stations. Well, now what you generally have is two junior officers. So you have the tactical coordinator, known as the TACO, and then the co-TAC. TACO fights the aircraft. So in front of him, he will have every bit of information that comes in through all our sensors. The COTAC essentially manages the information flow in and off the aircraft. Because it's so integrated compared to the P3, and we found this in every bit of warfighting we do, exercise or operation, the information flow that comes out, it's not too much, but you've got to have someone to manage it. So that the, the TACO knows, okay, the other platform that's involved in the exercise, 
what have they found out? They, they put this track on link, uh, and this bit of information is connected with it. What speed it's doing, what its intentions were, what it replaced, what the surface plot is, and the stuff we push out goes to the other aircraft as well. So the, the, the connectivity and integration we get is, that's an absolute step change. It's not something that's slightly better than the P3, it's a complete step change in how we operate. The way that the tactical mission, the, the TOMS, I think it's the Tactical Operation Mission System, um, is something we're learning as well. Over the, over the last couple of years, how the, the TACO employs that gives the likes of Greasy and Larissa up the front a, a huge amount of, of awareness of what's going on. It plans out the boy patterns. You can display missile engagement zones on it. You can display where the sonar boys are, where you think the submarine is. And that all happens without any need for the, the, the tack row and the front end to talk to each other. We can push that to the, the ship that we're working for. We can push that out to the helicopters that are working with us. That all means that the TACO's got a lot more time to thinking, right, how do I fight this battle that I'm fighting? Because they're not simple anymore, they're complex battles. There's surface units, there's air units, there's subsurface units, there's friendly units, there's neutrals. All that stuff requires the TACO to think about this stuff. How do I best employ the, the weapon system that I've got? So the TACO and the COTAC will generally sit next to each other, and then we'll have three or four, depending on the, the setup, Airborne electronic analysts, specialists in generally either acoustics or radar and ESM. If we're doing ASW, we'll generally have a couple of guys or girls working acoustic warfare. So I'll show you down about the sonar boys that we drop, they'll be analyzing that. Again, the acoustic system is a step up from the, the P3. So bearings, noise sources, things like that. That information gets fed to the TACO, who then decides when we're going to put my next pattern of sonar boys. What am I going to tell the ship that I'm working for about where the submarine is and what, is, what we think his intentions are? The third station, the guy, the guy or girl, will be doing radar and ESM. If we're doing a surface surveillance mission, you'll generally find the acoustic operators, because the stations can, they don't have to change seats, they'll just change the display, they can work radar and ESM and EO. We've got an EO ball, very similar to the P3, uh, the MX-20, really capable EO system with IR, um, that means you can visually identify contacts from a, a, a much greater range. But that, for example, if you've got a hostile contact and you can see it from a range that means you're outside the range of its weapon systems, then you're keeping the risk to yourself much lower. And Captain up the front can see that, display that in one of his displays as well. So this will be the heart of where the aircraft gets formed and where the information comes in and out. Now as we move back through the aircraft, what you're going to find is a huge amount of space and not much else. It's because it's a 737. Uh, and our stuff fits in here, but some of the ordnance stuff is down the back. This is the power distribution for the stuff that's working up there. So they're much bigger generators than you need on a Qantas jet. So there's a, I think it's the same engine, but it's got a completely different gearbox and drive to accommodate that. A 90 kV gauge. We're heavier than a 737. Right. 737 is about 155,000 pounds max takeoff weight. We're 189. Now that a lot of that is fuel. Where the Qantas baggage storage is, we've got a fuel tank. Because we need the range to get offshore, operate with the Navy, potentially a long way from our home base. Back here is essentially the, the ordnance system of the aircraft. We've got the Sonoboy storage racks. Now Sonoboy's uh, essentially it's a hydrophone, so underwater microphone. Drop a microphone into the ocean, every submarine makes noise. Nuclear submarines make more noise than diesel electric submarines, but they all make noise. For a, uh, for a nuclear uh, submarine, the reactor and the cooling pumps have to run, so they make noise. Some, the sonar boys basically listen for that, for that noise, transmit, transmit the signal back to the acoustic station, 
and the guys and girls who are specialists can work out what noise it is. Is that a submarine noise? Is it a particular class of submarine? Submarine warfare is complex yeah. and it's difficult, which is why you've got a tack well of six people to do it. But this aircraft is built as an ASW aircraft. It's designed, it's not a converted 737. I've been to the Boeing factory in Seattle uh, and they've got a whole line dedicated to PA. It's built from the wheels up as an ASW aircraft. That's one of the reasons why we, why we acquired it. For example, um, the P3 had three, just like this, it's got three of these single launchers. We've now got three of those, but also three pressurized launchers that hold 10 each. So we can, the, the TACO can drop out 30 Sonoboys without having to reload any of them. Whereas P3 is desperately trying to reload three single launchers at the same time. Where is the overall program sitting at the moment? Uh, we've declared IOC, initial operating capability, about a year ago, which was about five months early. In about 15 months, I'll have the full fleet of 12 aircraft. So the next 12 months, we're still working to how do we develop the system, how do we use it, how do we best operate it, whilst training other guys and girls to do that. So in the next 12 to 15 months, we're going to make, uh, there's going to be a huge move towards full operation capability. We've got two of the best simulators I've ever seen. Most of the high-end training is done in the simulator not done as much on exercise. Those simulators are now, uh, distributive training is something that ADF's getting into. So you, uh, a ship can be tied up alongside, we can have our, our crews in the simulator, their two sims talk to each other, and it's as though we're off Fleet Base East in the Eastern Excise areas, but we're not both tied up alongside. And you can add a, a huge amount of complexity, because I don't need two submarines and four major fleet units and six aircraft, I just need two simulators. Is it just for... Pilots? No, it does, it does the front end the pilots, the back end the operators and the, the, the MPROs, Maritime Patrol Reconnaissance Officers, and all the analysts, and we channel the ground crew as well. But for example, when I did conversion on Nimrods more than 30 years ago, I did 26 trips. Laz did 14? Uh, yeah, 13 or 14. 13 or 14 because the rest of it's done in the, in the simulators. The task of introducing a new combat aircraft to service is increasingly a joint effort between the ADF and the companies who manufacture and maintain the high-tech machines. We sat down with Greg Ulmer and Andrew Doyle of Lockheed Martin to discuss the F-35 systems and the enormous logistics and training systems required to keep them flying. Afternoon gentlemen, thanks for joining us. We have Greg Ulmer from Lockheed Martin alongside Andrew Doyle, his colleague, as well as Dr. Malcolm Davis, ASPE Senior Analyst. Thanks for joining us and we're here to talk F-35. And we're all well aware in December last year the RAAF received its first two F-35s in country. Andrew, you're based up there. I was wondering if you could sort of point us in the direction of where that program's at, sure. um, what the status is. Yeah, so uh, the first aircraft arrival in December last year was a, a, a great um, culminating moment for um, a lot of activity over the, the, the years um, leading up to, to that point. So it was um, the, the OEM for the F-35, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, we've been working very closely uh, with, with the RAF and with um, local industry to uh, lay in the capability at, uh, at RAF Base Williamtown. So uh, the Southern Hemisphere's only um, F-35 um, 
training centre, um, spares, support equipment, um, an extensive field services team, and uh, it was really a, a, a um, fitting occasion uh, with, with the arrival of the, the first aircraft in uh, December. But but that's also I just I, I opens the uh, the book on the next chapter of, uh, of sustaining the F-35, uh, assisting the RAF to get the uh, the most out of the capability. Well, it's it's a fantastic platform. Uh, it's certainly the the cutting edge in terms of air combat technology today. Obviously, there's the follow-on modernisation program. Would you care to give us a few details on where you see that going for the RAF in terms of how we evolve this aircraft's capabilities over the next 10, 20 years? Uh, sure, the RAF is a long-term partner of the F-35 is fully invested into the continuous capability um, design and development um, program and uh, will continue to, uh, to, to receive future block upgrades uh, to the aircraft. So. The aircraft that are in service uh, with, with the RAF now are the latest uh, Block 3F program release in advance of the uh, the uh, scheduled uh, Block 4 rollout uh, next decade. There are uh, minor uh, technology insertions that are, are uh, happening uh, to the, uh, the F-35 and even in the, the, the short period uh, since the RAF has been operating the F-35 at Williamtown we have already uh, released uh, technology insertions to uh, the ALICE system, to the training system and uh, we, we've got um, aircraft software that's ready to release to the RAF as well so that is next to the building blocks uh, along the road to uh, keeping the, the F-35 at Well certainly it did very well at Red Flag didn't it? Yes. Yeah. And did you want to talk a bit about that? Uh, well I think that's, that's probably more a question for the RAF in terms of the, the, the operational effectiveness that they've employed the, the um, capability there but uh, certainly all of, the, all of the feedback provided to Lockheed Martin uh, and, and as reinforced this week at the air show by um, Air Commodore Mike Kitcher as uh, Commander Air Combat Group is that the RAF are very satisfied with uh, what they're seeing from uh, F-35 so far. And Greg, I don't know if you could perhaps touch on where the global program is at and maybe a little bit on where Australia's capability sits in relation to some of the partners, countries. Sure. So Andy mentioned um, the airplanes for Australia are delivering in the 3F capability. So just this, this week, we DD-250, that's, think of government formal acceptance of AU-12. So the 12th Air Force airplane just DD-250 Tuesday in the United States. Both AU-11 and AU-12 will ferry over to Williamtown probably the first or second week of April this year, so there'll be four airplanes here. And by the end of this year, there'll be eight RAAF airplanes here locally in Australia. From a bigger program perspective, we're over 370 airplanes delivered now. The fleet is over 180,000 flight hours. Now we're accruing about 5,000 flight hours a month based on the fleet size. If you look forward into the future, um, today, you know, I mentioned 370. In three years, we'll be north of 800. Another three years, we'll be north of 1,000 airplanes. Um, so the fleet is growing very rapidly. Last year, we delivered 91 aircraft per our plan, and we're going to deliver 131 this year. Next year, we'll deliver 141. And it steps up in terms of uh, getting to our max delivery rate of about 180 airplanes in 2023. And what are the challenges with ramping up production at that sort of high level? The challenges really are, I can't quite say behind us at this point, but very close to being behind us. And it really has to do with tooling the, the enterprise, not just the production of final, think final assembly of the airplane, but all of the supply, uh, the supply base. And Australia is a big part of that. And we've had several acknowledgments this week here at the Air Show, Avalon Air Show, relative to Australia industry contribution to that. We just celebrated RUAG's 35,000th uh, part for the F-35. And that also includes the sustainment of F-35, not just the production of F-35. So there's, just a, there's quite a bit of work going on to ensure that we have the appropriate capacity 
both in terms of new production, repair, spare, etc., for that fleet growth I mentioned earlier. Can you talk a bit about where Alice is in terms of mitigating its problems? Because I know it's had its share of issues, and it's a critical system to ensure the F-35 is operational and ready to fight. Yeah, so um, Andy mentioned follow-on modernization. Part of that follow-on modernization is to continue to refine Alice. One of the elements we want to really focus on is when we deliver Block 4 capability at Lot 15, so that 2023 time frame, that's also known as Tech Refresh 3. Alice has never had a Tech Refresh from the beginning of the program. And so we're very focused on a technical refresh. Think, think of the components that make up the system of Alice. Um, so we're very focused right now doing a lot of development work on that technical refresh of Alice. Not just from a hardware point of view, but from an architecture point of view. How do we make Alice more robust? How do we improve the human interface with the Alice system? in terms of maintain or using the system. So we're very focused on that. In layman's terms, could you break down what Alice is and what it actually does? Sure. So Alice actually is an automatic system that uh, we think of as an off-board mission system of the airplane. And we diagnose the health of the vehicle as well as manage the supply. So every component on the F-35 has what's called an electronic file associated with it. So think of the, in in a broad sense, think the engine. It's got a serial number to it, right? So all that's tracked electronically rather than manually as we've done in the past, right? And as we uh, operate the airframe, uh, we have experience with all those parts and, and through that experience, we can begin to predict performance of how these parts are performing. And, and the airplane actually is performing very well. So if you look at the airplanes delivered in lot eight, nine, 10, 11, so we're delivering lot 11 airplanes this year, uh, we're typically seeing about 60 to 70% mission capable rate. If we compare that with uh, lots three, four, and five, so eight, 10 years ago, we were seeing in the high 40s, mid 50s kind of mission capable rate. And the reason you see that improvement is because Alice has helped inform the enterprise relative to specific components that work performing per our plan. And so we developed uh, reliability improvement plans around those components to improve them. We also developed um, and refined the diagnostic system on the airplane because it was probably providing false alarms. So it was saying a component was no good. We went to that component, took it off, removed it, put it on a test bench, and it passed. And that's simply because we didn't have the experience yet of operating the airplane, and we're just refining and honing these, these algorithms. So today, our false alarm rate's very low. It's around 2 or 3%, whereas think five, six, seven years ago, it was probably around 12% false alarm rate. So a really significant improvement um, in terms of that capability. And that's another, that's another element of strength of the Alice system, right? It allows us from a, what I call a big data analytics point of view to, to, to manage all that information. What makes the F-35 so revolutionary in the sky? Why is it a fifth generation fighter and why does it have such an effective advantage over fourth generation? It's really the, the airframe is a, it has a sensor suite on it. It has many sensors on it that captures a lot of information relative to the battle space. It also has a, a, a data fusion capability where it takes all that information from all those different sensors and infuses it together. So think about um, gathering a bunch of information and then shaping a story based on all that information. So we understand what the threats are. We understand what the capabilities are. It could be in terms of our adversary, in terms of what I would call the blue force, in terms of what our capability is. So all that sensor suite gathers all that information, then it, it determines what the order of sequence of battle ought to be based on the capabilities you have at hand, or maybe 
you should not engage. Or maybe the fourth gen asset next to me should not engage that asset based on the data collected. That's just part of the, the strength. The other strength is it communicates that information across air, land, and sea assets relative to that engagement. So here's here's the information in, in, the, in the local battle space. Here's how we collectively ought to engage that relative to the assets we can bring to bear or not. Here's maybe an area to avoid. And that's really the power of F-35. It's, it's really stealth. Allow the airplane to get to a place that not a lot of assets can get to. It's that data sensor suite. It's data fusion. And then it's really the, the connection or the communication of that information across air, land, and sea assets. See, a lot of people out there you know, sort of in the general public, when they see a fighter aircraft, they think in terms of speed and maneuverability, they think in terms of traditional dogfights. Right. And the F-35 is not really designed around that. It's really designed about exploiting the information edge and sharing that information edge to enhance everything else around it and gain that first look, first shot, first kill right. advantage. But you know, how do you counter criticisms of people who disparage the F-35 not as good in terms of pure dogfighting ability. So you mentioned, Andy, you know, the red flag results. Mm. And so that's how you do it relative to the performance of the system. Um, so we've seen very strong performance coming out of red flag. We don't have the exact information out of this year's red flag, but we know prior we've had things such as 20 to 1 kill ratios. Mm. We've already heard stories out of this year's red flag where fourth gen assets about to engage were instructed based on information provided by the F-35 that you will not survive the engagement, recommend against it, right? So we're hearing very positive. So performance. Performance is how we really um, take on the critics. And talking a little bit uh, back to Alison a bit on the Australian program, I'd be interested to know what you learn on the ground here in Australia feeds into the broader global program uh, in terms of maintenance and performance. And also what this new sovereign data management capability actually means for Australia and whether that guard against cybersecurity concerns or what the actual reason behind that is. Australia really benefits you know, from the scale of the, the overall F-35 program. As Greg said, more than 370 um, aircraft field are now at um, 16 operating um, locations. So Williamtown will, will be a, a significant operating location for the, the F-35, but it is part of that overall enterprise and somewhat analogous to uh, to, to Greg's remarks about fusing data in the, uh, the the operational space, that that is also how sustainment operates, that um, all, all of the uh, RAF fleet operating data training system that the RAF um, uh, employs, the ALICE system that the RAF employs, that they are all part of the, the, the overall global enterprise. So the RAF will continue to, uh, to, to, to benefit from all of the economies of scale of the user community, uh, continuing to identify uh, improvement opportunities uh, to things like ALICE and, and the training system, and in the reliability and maintainability perspective. Information about the performance health of the RAF fleet being accumulated with the, uh, the user base ac- across the globe and then the RAF continuing to uh, benefit from um, reliability and maintainability enhancements. You really think about sovereign data management, it's a filter both in and out of the system, right? So from an in perspective, as you mentioned, cybersecurity, right? We want to be careful about the information getting to the system. And then from a sovereign data perspective, you want to be careful about what information you may provide outside because you don't want folks to understand how you're operating, training, and equipping relative to information, right? You got to measure how much information do you want to share relative to the performance of the system to the benefit 
of everybody who operates that system to take the lessons learned. And right. different countries choosing different options. Correct. So really, it's a filter in and out. It's a filter to help protect the system relative to cyber. And then it's a, you know, it's a filter out relative to what information from a sovereign perspective do you want to share or not to the larger enterprise. Boeing today unveiled a very interesting capability with the Loyal Wingman. Obviously, it's designed to work with the F-35. Do you, would you care to sort of talk a bit about that, how those, those two platforms are going to work together and the challenges of adapting the F-35 to control uh, something like Loyal Wingman? Yeah, so, you know, from a development point of view, Lockheed Martin, as well as the Boeings of the world, look at those kinds of wingman type of concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, Lockheed Martin has been looking at those kinds of concepts as well. And, you know, I think the future will only tell how that'll play out in terms of uh, wingman kind of approaches, not only on an F-35 system or in relation to an F-35, but to other platforms as well. So I take it that uh, Lockheed Martin has also got a concept in development? You, you can imagine, um, I, I myself have come from Skunk Works in the past, so you can imagine we have very similar kinds of uh, um, development programs and work as well. Yeah, thanks for your time, gentlemen. Thank right. you very much. Very thanks. Thank you. Finally, Malcolm Davis took the opportunity to speak with Rod Drury, Chief of Lockheed Martin's Space Division in Australia, about the challenges and opportunities the re-energised space program is bringing to Australian industry and the defence sector. We're talking about space and where you see things going within the Australian space industry and space policy and in particular the fact that Lockheed Martin recently signed an important agreement uh, with the Australian Space Agency. So let's start with that agreement first. Uh, what is it? Why is it important? It's basically an agreement with the, uh, the agency uh, where we will endeavour to support the activities that they're undertaking uh, and to contribute and the document actually uh, bre- uh, calls out several uh, specific areas. In very broad terms, those specific areas around education, uh, science, uh, technology, uh, engineering and maths in particular. It's around research and development and it's around areas where we can bring unique, extensive experience when it comes to capabilities. So what it, the document basically says is, hey, you know, um, we, we're going to work with you, agency, to achieve these outcomes for the, for the benefit of the nation, the industry and the nation, um, and this is the, the key areas where we think we can contribute to those. So that's what it specifically calls out. Important document because it kind of provides, if you like, a, a railroad for us to work on it. Well, looking forward on that railroad, where do you see uh, things going in this country in terms of space, say, over the next 10 years? Oh, what a, well, I mean, what a fantastic question. The reality is I think it's limitless. What we can see today is probably only part of what's really out there. Um, and this is not only exciting for the for the youth of, uh, of our nation, but, but also for us uh, people that have been in this industry for a long time. The government's decision to put in place the agency uh, really, if you like, put a beacon in place. It's a, it's a leadership, it's a door, it's an entry point for people both internally and externally. Um, and they are doing a great job in, in outlining a broad plan of how we want to increase the industry, hopefully to um, bring on around 20,000 jobs by 2030 in the space industry market. Uh, and frankly, I think the energy, the enthusiasm, uh, the innovations that are available in Australia and just the wherewithal and the willingness to really succeed, I think you know we've got a very good chance of delivering that, if not beyond. Uh, where will it be? Um, look, I suspect it'll be in a number of areas where we're key innovators. Uh, it'll be in areas of uh, research and development around space situational awareness, 
um, around uh, potentially uh, the advantages of remote mining. I keep going back to STEM because it's so uh, central and so important. Uh, hopefully it'll be around improved navigation systems, uh, precision timing systems. Uh, obviously we, we uh, contribute into that market but so do a lot of others and there's so many uh, if you like innovative ideas out there it's really a matter of how do we take those technology and, and harness them to deliver what we think is the, the needs of the future both the industry and the nation. And what do you think is the most important area out of those areas? I think at the end of the day, the improvement that we've already seen has been delivered through the testbed of the um, space-based augmentation system, where we can improve the uh, accuracy of the navigation system that most of us would rely on today from around about five to 10 metres of accuracy in the right environments, in the right climates, we can bring it down to uh, in the order of three to five centimetres. And the government in doing the testbed opened uh, up the opportunities for industries both nationally and internationally to come on board and test and trial different ideas and applications. They've, they've had some significant breakthroughs in a whole range of areas across a whole number of areas of government. So this is not just around defence or national security, but it's in areas, uh, for example, like maritime, precision navigation for ships. Uh, it can be around agriculture. It can be around you know a number of different areas. So really important, it's whole of government. The second one is STEM. We can provide the opportunities of the future, but if we don't have the workforce to deliver on that, we're going to be challenged. And it concerns me. We might get to a stage where the opportunities are there, we're trying to deliver them, and if we can't deliver them and sustain them and build on them in the future, then there's going to be a sense of you know, underwhelming, under-delivery. And so that concerns me, and it's one of the reasons why our company is just so passionate. One of the things I've been most impressed by with the Avalon Air Show this year uh, was seeing large groups of school kids wandering around and getting them exposed not, not only to defence, obviously, and fast jets, but also space. And do you think that there's really a case uh, for a company like Lockheed Martin? Oh, absolutely. And as I said before, the company's absolutely committed from the top down, and we're, we're constantly uh, looking for those opportunities. Clearly, at the moment in particular, there's more opportunities than perhaps we can satisfy at times. Yeah. Um, so we do our best where we can, contributing to the National Youth Science Forum, the Australian Youth Aerospace Association, the Victorian uh, Science Schools, uh, education forums. We engage, uh, we have the STEM activities, for example, that'll be here this weekend at, at Avalon. We use space sometimes, if you like, to entice and engage and encourage. But the realities are that it's just a platform. There are sim you know, similarly exciting opportunities in defence um, and, and a lot of other activities. I mean, agriculture and maritime, um, you know, the list goes on. It just so happens that at the moment, a lot of people are motivated by what they see and what they uh, envisage uh, are all related to space. Yeah. Let's turn to space industry for a bit. You know, we had an important conference this week at the Avalon Air Show on space industry. Where do you think are the opportunities for space industry and where do you think are the risks for space industry in this country? So I'd go back to those opportunities that relate themselves when it comes to innovation. The ability to take uh, technologies and capabilities that perhaps evident or, or exist in other areas and bring them into space. And, and a good example of that would be the, uh, the Fire Opal Space Situational Awareness Sensor that Lockheed Martin has worked with Curtin University to develop. Originally, that was actually a sensor that's been deployed throughout the Australian landmass for a number of years that was originally used to detect meteorites. Uh, what we managed to do was um, see that technology, apply it differently and we're continuing to do research and development activities with Curtin to see if we can take it, if you like, into a viable, productive, uh, real innovative solution in Australia and, and potentially the globe. Who knows? We're not, we're not quite there yet, but we're very close. So that's just one example 
um, of the many things that I think that can be available. But, you know, in the end of the day, um, I think Australians are very innovative. Uh, we often have to um, make do with, um, you know, the financial constraints. Um, often, sometimes it could be other constraints that are within our market. And I think we've got a very uh, strong and proven track record of where we've delivered that in the past. And frankly, uh, I see it through our uh, small to medium enterprises and universities today. I see it through our bigger companies today. Um, and I see it through the, um, the interests that are coming in from venture capitalists and the other, if you like, motivators of, of di different groups that take uh, and help industries grow and prosper. So there's a lot of opportunities that are out there, a lot of growth, but there'll be some risks as well. Yeah, look, and obviously the, I'm going to go back to the, the, the risk I highlighted to you before, and that's the workforce. You know, the issue is having the right people at the right time uh, qualified. I think it's our largest risk. We've got a lot of people in Australia that have gone offshore to pursue careers in space. And the reason is, is because at the moment, the space market uh, and the industry that supports that is not mature enough to offer a lot of or enough end-to-end -end career opportunities. So it gets back to the fundamental capability capacity issue. Um, and, but I envisage that will change over time. It's just it's just going to take time for that to occur. You know, some of the other areas that we can offset some of that risk is to take technologies that have been developed offshore, bring them into Australia and adapt them and modify them and hopefully develop them to provide greater capabilities. Again, there's many examples of that around. A number of companies in Australia have launched small sats, different capabilities. The opportunities are there. We've got the entrepreneurs, we've got the innovators. But as I said, we need that. We need that workforce. And we absolutely need that team kind of uh, feel, if you like, around the agency in support to achieve that national effort. Um, let's turn now to space and how it relates to defence and national security. Talk about space surveillance. Where do you see the key challenges and opportunities are for Australia in moving in that area? I think there's some pretty clear challenges there. What we need to do is, uh, if you like, step back at the macro level and look at where we where we can um, enhance where there might be uh, shortfalls at the moment, uh, not, not necessarily in capability but just in growth opportunities or areas of uh, protection. We've got those, for example, in space situational awareness would be a, a good example. You know, we have military uh, communications would be another uh, good example for you of where we've got capabilities now. These capabilities sometimes would be available offshore, but um, I think going forward in the future, they would be opportunities where we would work very closely with Australian industry. Maybe even Australian industry would come forward with that technology to fill those gaps. And a good example would be the um, the ADF's uh, military SATCOM opportunity that's currently uh, out on the market. A lot of industries um, positioning itself to respond to that. It, it's one of those opportunities that's significant, it's drawing a lot of attention both domestically and internationally. But that opportunity alone, I hope, will have a lot of Australian content. It could be that there's got to be some international content as well. But in the end of the day, um, as long as we as an industry can bring the solution that the Defence Force needs, I think it's again better for the industry as well as our nation. Another example would be the, um, like I said before, space situational awareness. But, but you know, there's there's a multitude of these opportunities. Sometimes we don't realise just how big a role space plays in so many different capabilities. Mm, it's the role of that um, space industry sector in supporting defence and national security tasks in space that I think is really important. There's there's quite often a tendency to say, oh well, we'll develop this within government and have a purely government-run defence space capability. But the space industry in this country could develop the sorts of capabilities in terms of small satellites and responsive space launch that could support the national defence mission? Oh, look, absolutely. And, and I think it's an important point that uh, the days of governments and defence forces funding research and development 
and being that central funding of pretty much it's recognised now that that's gone. And what we're finding now is that the, the commercial demands uh, and expectations and where they want to take the technology is what's really driving it. And let me tell you, in Australia, it's happening any the same as it's happening everywhere else in the globe. Rod, look, it's been a really fascinating chat um, from one space geek to another. Uh, I've enjoyed it and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you and thanks again for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this air show special. We'll be back in two weeks and please drop us a review or comment on iTunes or Spotify.